Hello, and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast, a gambling addiction recovery podcast brought to you by those with lived experience. If you're here and having difficulties with gambling, please reach out. There are plenty of people on your side. There's a comprehensive list of support services over on our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. It's now time to crack on with the pod. Hello, Ryan here, and welcome to episode numero four of season three of the All Bets Are Off podcast. Today, we're going to be covering two subjects that we're yet to cover, and that's social casinos. And later on in the show, we're going to be discussing gaming and loot boxes. First up, the topic of social casinos. Now, this is a conversation that I'm really looking forward to, given that I have absolutely no lived experience in this area myself and was truly gobsmacked with what I heard in a pre-recorded discussion with our first guest, Indira Tondu, who's going to be joining us all the way from Manhattan over in New York. Indira is a listener of the podcast and sent in details of her story, and I have to say it absolutely fascinated me, and I just thought... We simply have to get her on. Having undertaken some research ahead of the show, I was surprised just how big social casinos, well, the market for it, actually is. It was difficult trying to find the exact value, but it is worth billions. And whilst many articles I read didn't believe that social casinos are classified as gambling, it's clear from the story that we're about to hear that it can be addictive and that you needn't migrate to real money casinos to lose a lot of money as it can easily be done on these applications. North America is the biggest market for the industry, uh, followed by Asia and then Europe. Anyway, enough of me, let's hear from our very first guest of today's show. Hey Indira, great to have you on the show. I guess the first thing is, based on your experience, uh, is to explain to our listeners what a social casino is and how it all works. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I can help somebody with my story. Social casino or social gambling is basically um, a casino with all casino, uh, a, a virtual casino with all casino games, slots, roulette, baccarat, blackjack, that you could play online by downloading an app on iPhone or Google Play. And you could also play on Facebook on your computer. And it's a social casino. It's called social casino because you can play all the casino games, but but you're not using real money. You're playing virtual chips, which is free because they give you these chips. When you first download a game, you get chips, and every day that you log on, you get chips. So you you could play these um, this casino until your chips run out. Your virtual chips, your gifts. After that, then, you know, you have the option to buy um, certain packages. Sure. And the social element of that, um, Indira, uh, I take it you could chat to individuals there and uh, there was a chat facility, etc. Yes, there were chat chat rooms like in the same. Every casino room had, I guess, six, five or six players. I think I'm not sure. can't remember. Um, and then there's a chat in that room and. You make friends, some people know each other, some people are like married and, you know, um, so it's very sociable. <laughs> Thanks for that. 
in Deera and uh, and I guess therein lies one of the issues you know you're given free chips at the outset so you know it's a game but then there's the opportunity to buy more and that's where I guess for some people there can be a slippery slope and especially if it's a social setting as well when you're in there chatting with people and you know it makes it sound like a fun thing and maybe not an isolating thing which maybe it is and maybe we'll we'll come to that later on I don't know but um, along with everything you're just about to reveal to us actually about social casinos and how quickly they can turn your life upside down. I think what's particularly poignant is that prior to your experience um, of using a social casino, I don't believe you ever gambled. Is it fair to say that? Yes, Chris. Um, I wasn't a gambler. I didn't even know how to gamble. I had been to a few casinos when I was on vacation once or twice. Um, probably went in and out, you know. I remember playing some slots and not being very interested in it. I went to a wedding in Vegas and there was casinos everywhere, of course. And I think I threw a couple of coins in a, in, in a slot machine and I never won anything. I just walked away. I was with my husband at the time. My husband doesn't gamble. My family doesn't gamble. I don't know any gamblers really. Now I do, but I, I didn't know before. <laughs> to me, it was something harmless. You know, I, I wasn't looking for a gambling app. I just wanted to learn how to play poker because somebody said, do you know how to play poker? And I was just intrigued. And I felt bad that I didn't know how to play poker. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to learn. And that's how it all started. I downloaded an app and I remember, I remember the day I downloaded. I don't remember the day, but I know the date because it's in the Apple iTunes and it was January 2012. I remember that I downloaded that um, that app, and in three years, um, before you know, less than a year, I was already a compulsive gambler. Yeah, and as we know, uh, a gambling addiction is is totally indiscriminate and can affect affect anyone, uh, regardless of gender, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or or social class. And there has been some research into female gamblers, uh, which obviously evidently come under, and they suggest that that gambling is used uh, more so as a as a coping strategy. Now, at this particular time, did you have anything going, anything else going on in your life? And if so, did you think that further drove your addiction and the intensity of it yes um before i downloaded that app my husband and i um would golf we would go on vacation every we would go on vacation every year we would golf we would do things and my husband um later um developed really bad bad um back pain and he was put on very strong painkillers and at the same time, uh, my son, who's 22, suffers from autism, high functioning, what they used to call Asperger's. And um, he was struggling in school. He, he had been bullied, um, didn't want to get out of the car when I drove him. And it was very stressful for me. He was, um, uh, he's a very smart boy and um, I was worried and it was very stressful. It was bad. I had to, we ended up homeschooling him in that, in that year. So um, that was very stressful. And I guess having that game was an escape. It was an escape. And I, I remember when I was playing poker, it wasn't very um, expensive. It was actually 
very easy. It's a slow game. Um, the bets aren't as high as a slot machine, but soon I slid to the roulette and then the poke and then the slot machines. And that's when it got really, really bad. It's amazing how much I can relate to you, India. It really is. I mean, I've got uh, two children and both of them have autism as well. And uh, one of them also has Tourette's. And I certainly used my gambling as a as a coping mechanism for some of that, as well as my um, alcohol consumption, being an alcoholic as well as a compulsive gambler. Um, so I totally get that. And and for me, and also you spoke about some progression there, you know, starting with the poker, which didn't cost too much, but then you moved on to the slots. And that's the same with me and my gambling, you know. It started off with sports betting and then very, very quickly turned up to me being in a in a virtual casino or whatever I was in and, uh, you know, losing a lot of money and very progressive, but it's amazing. It really is amazing how I meet people on this podcast and other places who I can relate to in such a way. And I guess one of the primary pulls of this type of casino is, as per the title says, there's a social element to it. I assume that there were chat rooms um, and how, you know, how much went on in those chat rooms? Was it possible to determine the type of people in there? Did people become friendly? And would you say there are a lot of women in there? And if so, what sort of discussions would be going on? Well, in the poker rooms, there were lots more men um, than women. There was a lot of um, friendly conversation. and but, but when I went to the slot machines, it was a little different. Um, they were more addictive. They were spending more money. There was um, less friendliness, more like um, a lot of competition. Like people wanted to show off their chip. They're displayed in your profile. And the people that um, didn't have chips would be um, begging for chips. So a couple of times I even saw women um, displaying pictures on their profiles that were very kind of revealing and asking the men in the in the room for chips and offering them to go to like a private room because you could go to private tables in within the app so that I, I saw the desperation i heard um people getting divorced because they had spent all their savings, they had stole from their husbands. And there were people from all over the world. I, I met people from Australia, South Africa. There's a lot of people from England. There were people from France, um, Asia, all over the world. And a lot of people in the United States, too, mostly. Did you ever see any sort of discussions of uh, potentially anyone offering their bodies and potential real-life meetups for, in exchange for some of this, uh, these virtual chips? In real life, no, but within the rooms, I could definitely say there were women offering, I don't know what, maybe pictures or something for, for virtual chips. I don't know in real life. I do know of a couple that met and got married in the app, so... <laughs> so, so I mean, we don't want to promote that, um, you know. So it's not all bad, but uh, you know, someone did meet their other half, which which is obviously fantastic if it's working out for them. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it does just bring a whole other the uh, whole other element and level into it, um, and it does make it sound a little bit underground and seedy. I think it, it's 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 best to say, and uh, yeah, can you tell us? 
about the currency and how it works. So you, you've said that people obviously could potentially send chips to other people in exchange for whatever it may be, uh, potential nude photos, I think we were, uh, we were suggesting there. But can you tell us how the currency works and how you could send people uh, that currency and such? Yes, the currency is um, virtual chips. And you get a daily bonus when you sign in every day. But, but that depletes right away because the, uh, I guess, it's fixed or something. It's rigged so that you lose. <laughs> I don't remember ever winning before I bought any chips. So it was just, you go through the chips that they give you. And then if you want to keep playing, you got to buy chips. And they have packages from $2 to $100 on Apple and Google. But then on Facebook, you could spend up to $250 at a time. On, on chips. And there was also um, a, a level program where you could become a VIP. And um, I was obvious on the highest level. I couldn't go higher. Uh, and and there were another thing that stood out from our conversation uh, that we had prior to recording were the parallels of what we see to ordinary real money casinos and indeed regulated sites um, and you just touched upon it a moment ago about the whole VIP thing and how you could create an abundance of accounts to take advantage of gaining free chips to gamble some more. It's, it's, we see a lot of people creating multiple accounts um, across betting platforms just to get free bets essentially and, and that's essentially what you would be doing on these social casinos. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about that? Yes so uh, um you can earn you can earn chips and gold. One time they were giving gold and on Facebook. I ended up opening about eighteen Facebook accounts. Eighteen. And um, I had I had to open up an email for each of those accounts. So I had practically a notebook with records of all these emails. 18 emails and 18 Facebook accounts with pass with passwords and stuff that I had to keep up and it was very stressful um, because they were giving out gold this way I could collect gold from each account and gift it to me the VIP account and that soon stopped <laughs> that was too good for to be true but then um, you know because you could give gold to other players. So um, they also had a VIP bonus, a monthly bonus. So depending on how much you spent that month and your level of VIP, you get a bonus. So you get a higher bonus if you're the highest level of VIP and if you spend more. So sometimes I will find myself saying, well, if I spend more, I'll get a bigger bonus anyway. So, and I will end up spend, spare, spending thousands in one day, you know, because you just keep losing, you just keep buying. <laughs> Crazy. 
Another thing I can totally relate to there, same with gambling and VIP schemes. And, you know, the more I lost, the more I was offered. And that, that's how it works. And it sounds exactly the same in the social casino setting there. I know from your discussion with Ryan, actually, that you were only playing on the site for around three years, I think. These kind of sites for about three years. And um, Could you tell us how much you ended up losing and how you funded your addiction? Yes. So um, I downloaded the app in, in January of 2012 and in January of 2015 I had already spent $200,000 $200,000 so w- when it started um, obviously I wasn't spending that much money but I would say well into five months I was already spending hundreds a month $100 more than $100 a month as soon as I slid into the slot slot machines, I was already spending that much money. And the way I, I did it at the beginning was I, w- I would use the house money. I would use all the money that I had in my budget. And then I would use my credit cards every month and struggle to pay the next month. And as we know, it gets worse and worse as the months go by when you can't catch up to the minimum payment on your card. Um, eventually, I maxed out all my cards and I started getting more cards. I have very good credit, so I would get cards with fifty and $70,000 in them. And um, I met, maxed those out too. I think by the end of the second year, 2014, I was already in, in default and my accounts were all delinquent. And I started... Um, taking money from my husband's account. Sometimes I would make a, a, trans, a transfer. Back then I had the password to his account. So I would transfer money to his account, to my account, and, and be able to fund. I was already delinquent. I had no credit cards. Then I started stealing money from his account. Uh, from, I Actually, I took out credit cards in his name that he wouldn't know about. I maxed those out too. Until I got caught because they would, they would come in the mail when I couldn't get to it first. And he would see, um, he would see the, the credit card and he, he would realize that he, did it, he doesn't have that credit card. So, you know, he soon found out that I was um, taking credit cards on his, under his name and um, doing that, and um, I promised I wouldn't do it again, and then, you know, I didn't take out more cards, because that w- I, 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 he locked me out, but I did, um, I did keep on gambling, and um, at one point, I started selling his, um, his pain pills to my neighbor, you know, I, I would sell it to a friend that, that needed um, the pain pills for somebody, and um, I would justify um, selling the, the, his pain pills because uh, my friend said she needed it for her boss or else her boss would, would be crazy or something. <laughs> you know, so I justified everything I did. You know, at the beginning, I justified the money that, you know, I'm not really doing anything because we've, we're really not, um, because of my husband's um, back pain, we're really not going places and we're not golfing together 
So I would I, I was spending money money that way, but I was justifying um, the money I spent, and I justified everything I did. But around around that time, I also realized that I had a problem. That it it, it was not normal because I never did it before. I knew that I had a problem, but I couldn't stop. I actually wanted to stop. I wanted to be the person I was before I gambled, and I couldn't. I always, you know, I would say, I'm not doing this anymore. And the next day, I'm like, as soon as I faced my life, I would be like, forget this, and I would just go to my iPad. I totally understand. I mean, everything you're saying is is stuff which I felt, I know Ryan would have felt, and People I talk to every week in my meetings at Gamblers Anonymous, they, they say the same things, you know, uh, things you're saying there about taking the cards out in your husband's name, you know, the credit cards, and then trying to intercept the postman so he never finds out. I hear that kind of stuff all the time, and it is stuff that we would never have done if we didn't get, you know, captured by this addiction. Um, and I'm so glad you realised this at some point, and now and now you're here telling the story, and you're in a different place. Uh, one thing that really interests me, because the story is so similar to that of a conventional gambler, um, obviously you were getting in all this debt, and obviously I would never advocate anybody going to gamble, but I just wonder, did you ever think about conventional gambling as opposed to the social casino setting? Because even though we don't win, because whatever we win, we put back. You know, if I, I can put myself in your position and I think well hold on a minute if I'm playing in this social casino I'm spending money and there's absolutely no chance I can get a big win in which is what my head used to tell me as a gambler I would have thought if I did it in an actual casino maybe I'll win something I'm interested in your thoughts on that well that's um so true Chris I never gambled in a real casino but once I started gambling in the social casino and I needed money when I ran out and I, I had no more funds I didn't have any um, savings. I couldn't take out any credit cards. I, I said to myself, maybe I should just go to a real, real casino, make some money so I could fund my virtual casino addiction. That, that crossed my mind. I think that's crazy that you think about gambling so you could get money so you could pl- play fake virtual coins it's just crazy it's just crazy that was purely addiction so when i did think about that i convinced myself not to do that right away and um again i wanted to stop every day i just wanted to stop and i i think that's coming on to one of the final points in Dara, I guess we should certainly end on a positive note and that's to hear more about your recovery. You know, you've told us that you you wanted to stop and we know that you did stop. I know from our uh, discussion that you had a brief relapse a, a few years back, but can you tell us about your recovery in, in as a story and the methodology that you use? And as I know that you are, like Chris, you're an advocate of Gamblers Anonymous. Yes, I, um, I've been in recovery for three years and six months and five days, three wonderful years. When I first went into Gam- Gamblers Anonymous, I really, I was ready to stop. I was ready to quit gambling, fix my problem. And become the person that I used to be. I wanted to be the, I, 
I wanted the old me back. I was miserable. I didn't talk to my family at that point. Not that they didn't want to talk to me, but I just, I was um, isolated from everyone because I didn't have time. I did this 24-7 because I didn't have to leave the house. I didn't have to go to a casino. It was all home. And I was, I was ready to be done with it. And um, it was hard because I was the only um, female in the room, but uh, I was there for me and I was, I was going to give it a shot. And I did. And for two years, I stopped and everything was great and, you know, not great, but life was normal. It wasn't unmanageable. I was able to face my problems. And just one day after having two years afternoon, I, I got an email from the casino offering me 50, 50 million chips. And um, I logged on that day after two years without gambling I just I don't know I don't know what it was I was curious I said maybe you know I don't know maybe I told myself I could do it and I wouldn't do it again um that night I spent the whole night gambling those chips and um the next morning I I couldn't I was like no because I lost everything and I said I can't do this I can't do this because um I would have to hide my husband could see me and I didn't want to so I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to leave it there. But then Sunday came. I didn't tell anybody. A month, two days later, I was with my son in a store. And I had like this panic attack because I knew I had gambled. And the first thing you do when you go to Gamblers Anonymous, you become honest. And the anxiety goes away. And, you know, you just become a more calm person and... Serenity, you get serenity. And I didn't have serenity. I had to tell my husband that I gambled for some reason. And then he called my um, my therapist at the gambling treatment center and he called me. So I went back to Gamblers Anonymous and I, um, and I told him that I had gambled. So I actually did not gamble for a long time and I didn't spend any money. But um, it did teach me a lesson. It did teach me a lesson when I went back because now I know that how it makes me feel and the difference between being abstinent and being in that life is um, 100%. It's not, it's not good. And, um, you know, in the first year when I went into Gambus Anonymous, I was ready to, um, to quit um, gambling, but I didn't know. I didn't know what it was, what was involved. You know, they talk about God in, in the meetings a lot. And even though I'm a Christian, I'm a religious person, um, it wasn't in my life. So I kind of faked it till I made it, like the book says. You know, God grant me the serenity. And, um, you know, today I have a higher power that I totally respect and love and I'm grateful and um, also, I did try um, Buddhism, recovery. I tried med- meditation, chanting. <laughs> well, I had a um, salsa teacher. I also went back to dancing, um, just not professionally, just um, as a hobby, <laughs> making that clear. Um, so I started salsa dancing again. And my a salsa teacher is, is a Buddhist, too. So... Uh, 
he taught me how to chant and um, what else did I do? Oh, I, I went back to golfing. I, I started golfing again. And I just kept really busy. I had to keep busy. And to this day, I'm busy all the time because our gambling brains wants excitement, wants something, you know. So I make sure I exercise and I sleep and I eat correctly and stuff like that, you know, as part of um, Gamblers Anonymous. And I, and I never miss a meeting. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, that's fantastic to hear. You know what? I wish that we were putting this out on video now so that you could do a little bit of salsa for us and uh, our, our listeners would be able to see it. But um, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Maybe that's for another show. But... I, 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 what you've touched upon there in terms of, you know, just, um, you know, an email, essentially a CRM message from from this social casino. And I guess, you know, for those that don't know anything about addiction and uh, just how susceptible people can be, no matter how far they are into, into their journey, you know, it only takes maybe having a bit of a bad day and to be caught a little bit off guard. But, you know, to go back into your recovery and continue working your recovery in so many different ways and everything that you're doing, it sounds absolutely incredible. So I'm sure on behalf of Chris and I and everyone uh, to do with All Bets Are Off, we uh, certainly congratulate you on that and uh, keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. It's been extremely uh, eye-opening. I think that's uh, uh, it's fair to say. And that's what I love about these podcasts, raising awareness of all forms of addiction uh, and the nuts, crooks and, and caveats of it all. And uh, yeah, just thank you for sharing your story. And can I say as well, you know, I love this podcast, but today I found this so interesting. This is something which, you know, I never did myself. I never got into social casinos or anything like that. And to hear your story, Indira, it's um, it's made my day actually. You know, I've learned something. I've learned not. It's not that I've learned something. I've learned a lot today. So thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The All Bets Are Off podcast is brought to you in association with Gamban, and they've teamed up with Gamcare and Gamstop to formulate Talkban Stop. The Talkban Stop campaign offers a trio of free tools to prevent gambling harm, with support via Gamcare's national gambling helpline, free Gamban blocking software, and Gamstop self-exclusion. Head to www.talkbanstop.com for more information. Talkban Stop is only available in the UK, but to block your devices from accessing gambling sites and apps, you can get Gamban at gamban.com or on the App Store or Play Store, wherever you are in the world. Now, though, it's time to get back into the pod. Okay, so here we are, part two of today's podcast, and we're going to be talking a little bit about loot boxes. Now, in recent years, we've seen a lot of discussion regarding loot boxes. For anyone listening in who may not know what they are, I will give you a little rundown ahead of our next guest, telling us a little bit about his story. In video games, a loot box is a consumable virtual item which can be redeemed to receive a, a randomised selection of further virtual items of course uh, we'll learn a little bit more about this very shortly we see these in popular games such as fortnite and fifa and have uh, become quite common from a gaming and applications perspective loot boxes and microtransactions are often used in free-to-play games to provide a revenue source for the developers in December 2019, the Royal Society for Public Health stated that the global loot box market is estimated to be worth £20 billion, with the UK market valued at £700 million, with many games containing loot boxes 
popular with children. To explore this topic in much more detail, we've invited a young man with lived experience of being addicted to loot boxes. Jonathan Pennicott's story was featured on the BBC website back in July last year, and three months later, he joined Epic Risk Management as its new online gaming and esports consultant. Let's get into the discussion. Hi Johnny, uh, wonderful to have you on the show with us today. Uh, I guess first of all it might be best to start with some more about you and your gaming background. When you started gaming, what types of games were you into and uh, what was your very first interactions with loot boxes? I think first video game I played was probably Lego Star Wars um, back on the PlayStation 2 with my brother. I really had no clue what was going on. I remember him getting that at Christmas and me joining in a bit but the first game I really played myself and really enjoyed was FIFA. I think I had FIFA 05 when I was about seven years old. I used to sneak downstairs in the mornings like play it really quietly on the TV so my parents wouldn't wake up. So yeah I, I played FIFA mainly growing up and in terms of loot boxes I think I was about 12 years old when I first asked my dad if I could buy packs. Um, on Ultimate Team of FIFA. So I, I guess it might be helpful for me to explain a little bit about um, about loot boxes within FIFA or packs. So Ultimate Team, I normally explain by saying it's like a huge online trading card game, except players can then take the cards and the players and put them in their team. So if you get better players, it's going to be easier to win games. And especially now with as as more and more people are knowing a growing esports scene there's more and more competition more players of dream of being like some of the best in the world and and every little step to get the best team possible obviously makes a difference so players can be bought and sold on a market online which has a virtual coins currency um, or they can be found in packs which are opened with coins or with real money so I was about 12 years old and I first asked my dad if I could buy packs because I felt like I was kind of a bit stuck in the game, to be honest. I was struggling to make progress. My friends were doing better than me, probably. And uh, I, I said, can I put, what, like 10, 15 pounds of money that I've had from Christmas, birthday, pocket money stuff at that age? And asked if I could put it onto the game because I'd need him to do it through his bank card so I could access it. And... I remember he said to me at the time, no, because it's gambling and how angry that made me. Um, so back then I thought, that's ridiculous. It's, it's my money is what I want to spend it on. And ultimately it's just a video game. So yeah, that's my earliest experience with loot boxes really. It's interesting hearing you say that Johnny, because my son is 11, he's 12 next month in fact. And uh He's well into his PS4 and all the games. And in fact, he's not into FIFA. He's got FIFA and he played it with his friends the other year and he's not really into it, which is a blessing in disguise, I think, actually for us. Um, but I've certainly had it where I have the Friday night, Saturday night, come on, Dad, I need more money to upload. I need more money. And, you know, that might have been for skins or something like that in Fortnite, which you used to play, and now money for GTA and all this kind of stuff. And I'm getting it all the time. So um, it's interesting to hear that you started kind of doing this stuff around about the same age that he is now. It's not... Um, it's not surprising for me to hear that, but you know, I know that as a parent now, this is going to be something that I'm really going to have to keep an eye on 
Um, and, and leading on from that, really, I guess, at what stage would you say the loot boxes became a problem for you? And what do you think were the determining factors? Um, like, I.e., were you going through any difficulties in your own life at the time? Well, I think, for me, there's probably three key points, three key turning points, if you like. So following on from that first time opening packs, I remember probably trying to hide a slightly disappointing, underwhelming feeling with what I got. But I did have a very clear sense that I still remember now of if I could spend another £10, then that'd be fine. I wouldn't need to spend any more because that next £10 that I spend will be the time that I get lucky. And so from that point, probably about four years or so passed of me spending more and more money on new FIFAs that come out. Because remember that FIFA is a game that has an annual cycle. So every year there's a new game and everything you have on the previous game becomes worthless in September. But I was becoming I was becoming more secretive with the money that I was spending. I would be going into WH Smiths or HMV and going and buying the physical vouchers that I could then go and redeem onto my console, onto my PlayStation without my parents knowing how much I was spending. And still at the time, probably didn't feel like anything particularly sinister to me. Because again, I was thinking, it's it's just what I want to spend my money on. I love playing FIFA. It's just a video game. I enjoy doing it with friends and stuff. There's a social element. Um, so yeah, noth- nothing sinister at all really at that point. But I was probably spending more and more money, probably starting to push over the £100 mark for each uh, for each game, so for each year in total. But then another turning point was when I was 17, I got a debit card for the first time. So that allows these purchases I was making to become impulsive and in the moment. So it was no longer a case of I'd like to kind of help out my team a bit here. Maybe I'm struggling a bit here or just want to have some fun. And I now don't need to go and plan a trip into town when my parents wouldn't see me going into the shop and buying the voucher that I'd then hide in my room in an old book somewhere so they wouldn't find it. Now, all I had to do was be a couple buttons away. And this is a really important point, probably for parents listening as well. As soon as you use a card to put money on the game, the console unless you basically state otherwise, will we'll save your card details. So they'll then be very easily accessible. So that's something to be aware of for parents. But also for myself, when I was willingly doing that, it meant literally two or three buttons I could make a purchase. Still, though, probably at that stage, although the spending was more, it was nothing that I would say was <laughs> out of control to a kind of crazy extent. But then the third turning point was when I went through a really difficult time in my personal life, some of which I can speak about, some of which I can't. One thing I can speak about is that my mum was diagnosed with cancer at the start of my year 13 at school, which was just, I mean, there's only so many words you can try and use to kind of put these times in life into into words, but it, it was just horrific. And I think it was one of those things where you probably think that's something that will always happen to somebody else that won't happen to me and when it did only a couple of close friends really knew what I was going through I didn't really tell many people for a long time and that's where it comes back to FIFA because I would be coming home and I would start using packs as a way to cope they were a joyful experience I'd had from really such a young age um, that kind of process of just 
putting money on buying something and just buying that little burst of happiness really the hope that you'll get lucky I can still remember when I was 12 years old I got Vincent company in a pack I can still remember that first time I got a great player and how exciting that was and really at a time where my personal life felt so difficult the world felt so difficult I started using packs as a way to cope and a way to have that little buzz and just to escape for a few moments what was going on. And it became really just seeking, maybe relying a bit on that rush, that rush from getting lucky, from chasing getting lucky. I'd say as well, in terms of actually playing games of FIFA, I was probably playing less than I had for most of my time growing up. I was playing the game less, but spending much more time opening packs um, so for me, there's a very clear distinction that I want to get out there for people in terms of gaming. And I think gaming addiction is probably a different conversation, really. But the, the amount of time you can spend playing, actually playing the game and then going into loot box gambling, they're very different, very different concepts, really. Firstly, Johnny, um, sorry to hear about your, your brother. I trust that she's she's okay now, um, from what I gather. Yeah, she had the all clear uh, at the end of that year from cancer, so... That's all good. Brilliant. Well, that's a relief. That's good to hear. And, you know, I, I do find this conversation remarkable because like conventional gambling, for want of a word, so many of the things that you describe are, are similar, especially regarding the sort of coping mechanisms and feeling that the next £10 will get you out the shit, for want of a, a term. Um, and, and and you even describe there where you talk about remembering that you got Vincent Company in a pack, you know, of my 15 years worth of gambling addiction is the certain moments that I can remember very vividly and one of those is my first experience of playing big stop betting terminals for example and the rush that I got from from winning on that first experience so some very similar sort of feelings and notions there and I would suspect that many in the same situation find themselves um, every much as as broke depressed and in a degenerative cycle uh, just like many if not all gambling addicts now I wanted to ask because I'm not sure about Chris but I'm certainly not a gamer at all um, was it just FIFA packs or were there other games that you would purchase loot boxes and uh, on on average how much are these packs worth so personally FIFA was the game that I played I spent far and away most of my time playing FIFA I had a much more of an incentive in that way to be uh, buying packs on FIFA. But loot boxes do exist in other games. There's probably a little bit of good news for <laughs> parents out there in terms of Fortnite's been a really popular game. And Fortnite basically has no loot boxes at all. In um, Fortnite Battle Royale is the mode that really made it kind of explode. No loot boxes in that at all. So as we said, a very clear distinction with loot boxes is when you're buying something and you don't know what's inside. Call of Duty, another very popular game uh, in recent years. Um, uh, no loot boxes in recent Call of Duty titles, which shows us this is not something that you need in the game to be hugely successful. But then if we look and see EA's kind of reported $1.5 billion revenue from Ultimate Team alone, the fact that it kind of contributes 30% of the company's total revenue, you can see why they don't really have an incentive to stop until they're made to. But no, myself, FIFA was what I would be buying packs on, but they are out there in other games that I don't play. For example, titles like titles like Counter-Strike. I know Roblox is one that younger children might play um, that people have had um, lots of issues with as well. 
So, PAX, I, I kind of, I'll, I'll break down some of the statistics as well when buying PAX. So, there's over 900 rare gold cards in Ultimate Team. So, any of the best players in the world out there, the players that realistically people are wanting to get in PAX are going to be classed as a rare gold card. So, that can stretch from anything like a David Luiz to a Cristiano Ronaldo. And um, so, with that said, over 900 rare gold cards in the game. In a pack that costs probably about £1.50, you're likely to get one rare gold card. And there's lots of different types of packs, which is why it's difficult to give a completely straight answer as to this is how much one player will cost in a pack. But from my experience, I would say a fair estimation across lots of different packs would be that £1 will get you one rare gold player. So you can probably see starting off that the odds aren't really stacked in your favour to start with. But then we bear in mind things like players with higher ratings will be more rare than the players with lower ratings. So they're weighted, so the better players, the, pe- the players that people will want to get in packs more, are far more rare than the other more common players. And a big problem that we have is that EA does not disclose what the chances are of getting any particular player in a pack. They bowed to some pressure a few years ago and released kind of like a bracket. So a player rated 80 to 82, you have an X chance of getting in a pack. Or a player rated 83 to 85, you have this chance of getting it in a pack. But really, I'd say, again, from my experience, those figures are pretty meaningless. I can't sit here and tell you guys what the chances are of getting a Cristiano Ronaldo, the player used massively in the game's advertising, what the chances are of getting Ronaldo in a pack is, because the figures just aren't out there. But I've tried to do the math myself at times, probably took too long. If you look online, I can feed back to you that most pages now estimate it to be about one in 60,000 chance when you spend a pound on a pack to get Cristiano Ronaldo. So not looking great. Yeah, so very unlikely to get Cristiano Ronaldo then. Um, I'm sure Ryan would be after Jack Grealish if he was playing anyway, to be honest. Um, but there we go. Um, it's interesting what you said there, Johnny, actually, uh, specifically for me as, as a parent. You know, my son and you know asks me to spend money for him on certain games. And it's the ones that you mentioned, like Fortnite and Call of Duty. And I've always thought, you know, that's okay as long as we know how much we're spending because we know what we're buying. I don't really see the point of these skins and stuff myself, but you know, if he likes it and kids do, I understand that because you know what you're buying. And the loot box is a very different thing, as you say, because actually you're spending your money, you don't know what you're gonna get, and, and hence the the risk of and, and the gambling side of it, really. But I guess is there a competitive edge to buying these packs? There must be. I assume that's why people do it. And and you've mentioned there about, you know, you've got a chance of getting a player who's an 80 to 82 or 83 rated, and then over that. Surely if this is the case then games are no longer like they were when I was much younger. And this is something that I've said and Kish has said on the pod in the past, actually. You know, back in our day, we'd buy a game at a one-off expense and then we'd put in a lot of hard work to try and complete that game. And then we'd get another game afterwards. Um, Whereas with the introduction of loot boxes and the other additional features, then surely it just means it's a case of who's got the deepest pockets. And I guess the other thing, just want to add on the end there, is, you know, when I bought a football game in the past... I didn't have to buy it year on year. But like you said, FIFA's got like a yearly cycle. Um, and then once you've got to the end of the year, all that money you've spent is worthless. Yeah, so in terms of the competitive edge, I'll probably try and quickly encapsulate some of the madness um, that this is. So I've mentioned already Fortnite, which is a game that blew up a few years ago. And 
<laughs> to very quickly try and describe Fortnite, it's like everyone in the game drops into an island completely unarmed. They then have to go and pick up different items and then try and be the only player left on the island by eliminating the other players. And if you eliminate a player, you're more likely to like you'll pick up their weapons, and so you can gradually kind of try and try and get the best weapons at your disposal. But the point that I make there is that everyone drops in on a level playing field. Everyone drops in unarmed. Similar in a recent game, Call of Duty Warzone, which is one of the biggest titles of 2020. In FIFA, completely different. In FIFA, the way that people qualify for esports events is done through what's called Weekend League in FIFA Ultimate Team Champions series. So people will play 30 games in a weekend, uh, which is a lot of time putting in when you consider that each game will last a, an average of 12 minutes plus the time in between. But 30 games and you win as many as possible and people with the best ratios can then achieve the best rewards in the game and then also qualify for events. And millions upon millions of players and young people are competing every single weekend. And it's not a level, level playing field at all. I mean, as you alluded to, basically, if you spend more money on packs, you're more likely to get a better player. Um, you can put them in your team and have a competitive edge. Absolutely. If I'm playing someone, to take your Jack Greenish example, as much as he might be a great player in real life at the moment, I'm sorry, I'm going to take Cristiano Ronaldo over him if I've got a game of FIFA on the line, quite simply. it's I should mention, absolutely, because there will be some keen FIFA players out there that would want me to, it's possible to do well and then to achieve well in FIFA without spending money on loot boxes. However, I think that would require a lot of ability in terms of people's kind of ability to play the game, their ability to trade up coins on the market to try and afford the players themselves. And to use an example, a German professional player this year announced that he wasn't going to be buying um, any packs because... He was against the principle of it. And I think the very fact that that then made multiple news outlets kind of shows how widespread this is and how controversial the concept of not spending money and trying to compete in the game at the same time really is. I would love for EA to come out and release the statistics of the percentage of players that open packs within the game. But again, in brief, yes, it offers an absolutely huge competitive edge depending on how much you spend in the game brilliant uh thanks for that and uh, uh just for the record i'll take jack grealish over Cristiano ronaldo all day long um <sighs> i so, wish you luck <laughs> uh no i mean and, and you know I, I tell you what i wish i could drop on an island with chris and kish and tracy and annihilate them all like in Fortnite. that's a that's another thing on a serious note uh johnny can i ask what made you seek help in the end when did you decide enough was enough and how and how was that transition? Um, in fact, can I ask whether or not you're, you're still gaming now? And if so, I'm assuming that these games don't have any have any uh, packs. And if they do, you're certainly not buying them. Yeah, so to answer about when things changed me and when I got help first, it it was ultimately a conversation with my parents that came when my card was blocking more and more of my transactions and the money just ran out. And... I spoke to them and I thought I'd spent about £700, I told my mum, which is what I thought at the time. And I'd actually spent close to £3,000. And that wasn't £3,000 of my money that I'd worked for. That was thousands of pounds that had been given to me by my parents 
are my grandparents that they'd worked hard for. And the conversation when they realized how much it was, was just <laughs> difficult to describe, but I, I will always remember my mum telling me that I had broken her heart with the money that I'd spent. And when I tell my story now and I say this, I, I really feel for her that I'm kind of sharing this because it's difficult for privacy, but it's a message that I feel like I have to put out there because this is the reality and this is the human cost that more people need to know about. I take responsibility for what happened. Those decisions to spend what I spent were mine and I own them and I will always be sorry for them. But I can say that and I can still stand here and say I'm not happy with the system that's in place today. And the reason that I'm trying to do what I'm doing now is rise for for all the people that will go on to to go through what I went through, whether that's going through a difficult time in their personal life or not, and having out of control spending. And also for all the people, all the people out there that that have gone through similar things and still with the, live with the and still live with the shame and the embarrassment of it now because this issue just simply is not talked about enough. I do still play video games now. I still play FIFA now, but I play a mode called Pro Clubs, which is completely separate um, and doesn't have loot box purchases within. And I mainly do that because over the years, I've become good friends with someone that has a YouTube channel, which has gone on to be quite successful. And it actually ties in because he's made quite a few videos covering the topic of um, loot boxes and how much he really despises them. And some of them did you know, exceptionally well, received hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. And I remember one time, actually, I was I was about to play a different game with one of my friends I hadn't spoken to in a while online. And he was taking a while to get on because he was sat there opening packs. And I was kind of like, oh, why are you doing that? And from that, I had a conversation with him where he told me that he had had real trouble with um, conventional gambling and also with FIFA packs and spending huge amounts that had caused him real trouble in his life. And that really stemmed me to then go and message my friend and say, right, let's let's do this video. Um, I want to tell my story. I did also probably, I, I tried to get in touch with a few journalists, but I decided that the way to first tell my story publicly would be to tell it on my friend's channel where I could tell it in my own words, um, kind of in a fairly comfortable environment. And the response to that was, was um, really overwhelmingly good. And so many people... Um, I think could relate to it and were supportive about it. Off the back of that, we had a petition, which uh, I don't want to take too long here going uh, going on a tangent, but the petition I'd said to my friend, we should we should make a petition here because people are saying that's the good next step. And he agreed, but he said we might only be able to get a couple thousand and push one over the line to 10,000 signatures where the government will respond to it. So he found one, which was an older one, which had about 6,000 at the time. A couple of days later, it had 45,000 signatures, such was the kind of response and how much I say this as well to show how much the gaming community is not all like on board with loot box culture here at all. This is something where the game, a lot of the gaming community really wants change as well. And also I mentioned like my friend's channel, which has succeeded because I'm in a lucky and privileged position to be somewhere where we receive messages from people who reach out. Um, having gone through similar things and especially after I told my story and talked about a difficult time in my personal life I could see a very very clear trend in those messages about people that 
their spending escalated to be out of control when they, for example, lost a parent very sadly or had a parent with cancer or went to uni and was struggling with depression for the first time. Like I say, a clear pattern of people that struggle in their personal lives and stated that they used FIFA packs, as some people would use other forms of gambling, as a way to cope with what was going on in their personal life. So, yeah, there's a very long answer to your question. It's a fantastic answer, Johnny, a fantastic answer. And I think the first thing to say is thank you. You know, thank you for putting yourself out there because you're getting these messages and that just shows how many people out there needing to hear a story like yours so they, somebody they can relate to gives them a bit of hope that they can they can get through this um, as well you know if they're stuck in a difficult situation at the moment spending money on loot boxes um they can get through it and it's so similar to the gambling it is where you said there about going and having that awkward conversation with your parents and and yeah that's the same with gambling i had that discussion with my parents and we're both having that discussion because we've lost a lot of money but there's a lot more to it than that you know it's all around our mental health and stuff and you know thank you well done Johnny I think it's absolutely incredible what you've done um, but that now brings me on to a question that I wanted to ask about um, there's a lot of talk about loot boxes at the moment and hopefully change is coming and you just said there a lot of the community want change the game creators insist that loot boxes aren't gambling and yet on the flip side to that many campaigners are calling for change. Uh, back in 2018, we saw over in Belgium that the Belgian Gaming Commission declared war on some of these developers and found a bunch of games contravened gambling legislation. Um, so what are your thoughts on this and what changes would you like to see being implemented? Well, thank you. And I'd expand on the point on Belgium to say that they defined loot boxes and FIFA packs as an illegal game of chance. And although you can still play FIFA in Belgium now, you can no longer open FIFA packs in Belgium. And I was encouraged to see, probably a matter of weeks ago still, the Netherlands fined EA 5 million euros, gave them three weeks to change the way that the game worked. Um, and for every week that they were late to deliver that, they were going to be fined another 500,000 euros. They've joined Belgium and taken a strong stance against against loot box gambling and that really encourages me because i will keep working until the day that that comes in the uk and with every country that makes those brave still brave steps it becomes easier for the next country historically ea and of course i should mention ea is one that's closest to my story but there are other games out there absolutely that are guilty of loot box gambling and Loot boxes have escaped gambling regulation under the technicality that they don't hold a real world value, the items that you receive in packs, for example. And what I'd say to that is, first of all, they actually do. You can look online and you can buy or sell items in FIFA for hundreds of pounds, up to thousands of pounds. But that's not even really the core of my point. That's not really where I'd want to take my answer to that because I think, I think that yeah, even if they don't hold a real-world value. The the value that's there to be found within packs and loot boxes for people like myself in the past and for all those young people out there is there to be seen in, like I say, the $1.5 billion that EA reportedly makes yearly from Ultimate Team. And um, another thing that they've kind of said as well is that something that I mentioned earlier, it's not essential to buy packs in order to uh, in order to play Ultimate Team. But I've also said in the past, if I were to start, you know, putting 
putting roulette machines in a children's playground somewhere and said, no, no, hold on, it's okay. The children don't have to use these these gambling machines. They can still just use the swings absolutely fine. I think I'd probably still run into a bit of trouble. And that's what it is. They've, they've tried to rely on a defence on the basis that it's not a compulsory part of playing the game, which to me is still madness. And they kind of helped me out where they really had a blunder, which was which went viral in the gaming community where in a Smith's Toys magazine, there was an advertisement that they put in for FIFA and it had three steps to playing FIFA. I can't remember what the third step was, but I can tell you step one and two. Step one was to uh, load up FIFA or buy FIFA, I believe. Uh, could be wrong. Step two was to buy FIFA points and open packs. So here we have, like I say, a key defense that no, you don't need to open packs to play our game, but also... The second key step that they, they give as a guide to playing their game is to open FIFA packs. So I will probably, like I say, I can easily go off topic here because you can probably, I hope it comes across how much this stuff frustrates me. But there was a call for evidence um, opened by DCMS. I'm right in saying that, right? I'd have to check. Um, there was a call for evidence on loot boxes, which um, we've encouraged as many people as possible to respond to. Hopefully off the back of that, we might see some change. I'm hopeful. I don't know how long the road's going to be, but like I say, I will just keep working until this day comes. So, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, thanks, Johnny. And that's what this episode is about. As we heard before the break with social casinos, just like loot boxes, the, the thoughts, feelings and notions that you went through and continue to go through this feeling of guilt and shame. These are all gambling sort of uh, feelings. Uh, it's, it's, it all ties in. And, you know, um, of course, it's it's great to hear some of our EU friends uh, taking action against some of these game makers. Um, we, we are sorry about Brexit, I promise. And Johnny, we're going to wrap up here uh, a little bit. But lastly, can I ask about your role at Epic Risk Management? Obviously, uh, CEO Paul Buck is a friend of the show and we are friendly with a, with a bunch of the people from Epic. And so it's good to see that you're in there and uh, doing your bit to, to raise awareness, as we've clearly seen on the podcast today. Uh, what is it that you do there and uh, what is it that you are hoping to achieve from that? So I joined Epic off the back of I had an article with the BBC and spoke on the radio and I think uh, I was contacted by Epic from there and I've been taken on board as a gaming and esports consultant so a lot of what I do now is to help internally educate and to help Epic understand issues around gaming and loot boxes which is something they take very seriously they take and we take a very clear stance at Epic now that no one under the age of 18 should be able to gamble on anything full stop. So as I say, internally helping them to understand issues around loot boxes and gaming, which they take very seriously and going forward, um, pretty working with clients as well and helping, helping externally to push out these messages. For example, at some point in the future, we might be able to, <laughs> I'm going to get caught up now on thinking, what can I say? What can't I say? Uh, but okay I'll probably stick with the internal education bit for now but so so to this point most of the work that I've been doing has been helping um, the company to understand issues around gaming and issues around loot boxes which they take very seriously brilliant well obviously uh send uh send Paul and, and the team our best regards and uh, just keep up what you are are, are doing uh, mate it's really great to hear we really appreciate you uh taking the time to come on and chat with us today and we really hope that positive changes is, is just around the corner with the review and whatnot. And as for our listeners, 
uh, be sure to join us next week. Same time, same place. You've been listening to the All Better Off podcast. To find out more about the creators of the pod, then please visit our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at allbetteroff underscore and share this podcast with others. Until next time, stay safe and remain gamble-free. Thank you for listening.